um, the abolition of, of, of capitalism, which the older I get, always feels silly to say, but like, is the point, right? It's it's going to require absolutely everything that we have, absolutely everything. Um, and we already have so much. And I'm just interested in looking to maybe where it's we're not thinking of looking simply because like capitalist hegemonic ideas have told us these aren't people that produce knowledge that is useful for anybody. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about the politics of health, medicine and the body. In this episode, I'm speaking with Waythera Sebatindira about how experiences of addiction and recovery might inform our understanding of politics, abolition and faith. Waythera Sebatindira is a Kenyan writer based in London. Their previous writing and research interests have included food imperialism, drag kings and gender transformation. They are a co-author of A Fly Girl's Guide to University and are now the sole author of Through an Addict's Looking Glass, which published earlier this year with Hajar Press. The book was described by friend of the show Misha Fraser Carroll as an essential and utterly unique text which will enhance your understanding of the connections between disability, addiction, black feminism, abolition, faith and solidarity, which is... Obviously, a great description of the book, but also points to a lot of things that Wayther and I discuss in this conversation. However, before we get into that conversation, there are a few things I'd like to say. Firstly, and as usual, if you're able to, please do consider supporting the podcast. You can do so in a number of ways, including signing up for a monthly donation, sharing this or other episodes with people you think might enjoy it, or rating the podcast five stars on Spotify or Apple. I'd also like to say thank you to all the people who have already signed up to support the podcast with a monthly donation. Um, I'm incredibly grateful and you've already made it possible to cover some of the upkeep costs in terms of website hosting and things like that, which means I can use my own money that was going towards that to expand what I'm able to do with Red Medicine. So thank you so much for that. And I will announce the books giveaway in November. Secondly, and more importantly, Um, I'd like to acknowledge what is happening in Gaza and join others in calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the war crimes being committed by the Israeli government against the Palestinian people. I'm trying to share writing on the Red Medicine Twitter account, which provides clear analysis of what's happening, as well as political and historical context. I'd also encourage people to go back and listen to the conversation I had with Lara and Stephen Shihai about psychoanalysis in Palestine. Their work is essential for understanding the psychic dimension to decades of Palestinian dispossession and oppression. Um, and yeah, with that said, let's now continue on to the conversation with Waythera. In, in a much or sort of as little detail as you want to go into, if you could maybe just describe the kind of experiences that have gone into writing this book. Um, obviously your experiences of addiction and recovery, um, but also maybe introduce people to what you're doing with your writing and the work in this book with regards to the kind of uh, way in which you want to use the insights that those experiences provided to kind of contribute to a political and, I guess, spiritual horizon. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I enjoyed most about writing the book is that obviously it does primarily draw from experiences of addiction and recovery 
um, but it also pulls together, um, even if not explicitly, from so many other experiences. It, it felt very holistic to write, so experiences of ADHD and of autism, but also drawing from a legal background and an interest in legal philosophy, which is where sort of the idea of the of social archetypes comes from. Drawing from the work of other people in transformative justice and abolition, drawing from a sort of vaguely musical background. And I guess part of what feels so good about it being holistic is that it feels very human um, because the experience of addiction, similar to, to being Black or just being a member of any marginalized group, creates this kind of double consciousness. There's an awareness of what society says an addict is or an alcoholic is that I always had in mind and that to varying degrees I identified with. But then there was also this continuous awareness of the actual experience that I was having. And so I guess part of what the book is doing is identifying that that double consciousness, just so much of the way that people talk about addicts using stereotype um, or stigma is presented as truth. Um, again, as is true of so many marginalized groups. And so it was just about, I guess, disrupting that, not necessarily just for the purpose of combating stereotypes because they're harmful. And in fact, one thing that was really important to me with this book is that it not be read as an apology or an explanation or a source of titillation for like a non-addict audience. Um, like the most fulfilling responses I get are from other addicts. But it was, it, I just when Hajar asked me if I had a book to write in me, because I they'd read another article on something entirely different that I'd written, when they asked me if I had another book to write, um, or I had a book to write, I, I guess I just wanted to express that, to take seriously the subjectivity of an alcoholic, my own subjectivity, on my own terms, as something that has artistic merit, um, and also political merit, because my political consciousness was fundamentally changed by by that experience. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to this in slightly more detail in sort of later questions, but could you just maybe begin to talk a little bit about, I guess, the kind of understanding that comes from addict communities about what addiction is and how that deviates from, I suppose, the ideas of what addiction is that are imposed from without those communities? I mean, that's obviously a big question. It's you can go into lots of different directions, but what are kind of some of the ways in which we might start thinking about in what ways these yeah. impositions are inaccurate? Well, I think part of what's interesting is that there isn't always as much of a distinction as you would think that there would be between how addict communities and recovery communities conceive of their own addiction and how wider society does. So you do still find many communities that um, are focused heavily on pathology or sort of at the very least on like psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic explanations of, of addiction. And you can still also inevitably find communities that conceive of addiction as a purely negative, sort of useless, futile experience that have sort of very rigid ideas about healing um, addiction bad, recovery good, recovery can only be abstinence, harm reduction is um, killing people, that sort of thing. So there isn't always the wide divergence that you think there is, but there, there obviously can still be those divergences. So harm reduction is, I guess, a way of addressing 
drug use and drug harms that not just addicts have developed or participate in, um, but that addicts have inevitably always been very invested in. And the idea that, you know, we don't treat drug use as a thing to eradicate or we we don't see drugs as inherently bad, engaging with the social construction of what a, a good or a bad drug is in the first place. And even, yeah, the fundamental idea that drug users and addicts are people deserving of dignity, um, that the state owes a duty of care to them, that a gathering of addicts isn't an inherently bad thing. All those ideas are quite radical when compared to mainstream discourses of addiction. All of those things shape the way that or are the product of addicts, drug users, thinking through their experiences of drug use of addiction differently to the status quo, drawing from their own embodied and communal understandings of it. But I think one of the things that intrigued me, and I I wrote about it a lot more in the first draft of the book, but it wasn't particularly interesting to read, so I removed it. (laughs) One of the things that struck me the most when I first started getting sober um, is that there's so much gatekeeping, possessiveness, division within recovery communities. You know, people have their conceptions of what addiction is and how to treat it, and they they guard it uh, and they disparage other sort of perspectives. But what's always struck me as being the case is that, like, there just isn't any one cause for addiction. The more, like, you know, I, I say in the book that there are as many experiences of addiction as there are people struggling with their substance use even to the extent that we can identify patterns where some people do have certain stories and they do have certain connections and they do share certain affective experiences. It's just so obvious that there is no one cause. So I think I recently encountered, as a result of writing the book, this uh, website called The Addict Collective, which is a substack. Um, And one of the writers, Virgil, writes about how we define addicts has less to do with how one becomes an addict and more to do with how addicts are treated. And it sort of theorizes a model of addict oppression that basically says that an addict is a person who is oppressed in these very specific ways. And they're like a, a philosopher of disability, I think amongst other things. And to me that that's like a very like groundbreaking way of thinking through addiction, the author themselves being an addict and is one of the ways of resolving this constant tension that many addicts have about what is addiction and a way of just kind of saying it it almost doesn't matter um, if we're more focused on like the material conditions of of addicts and wanting to to fix those. Yeah, and that quite clearly relates to, I guess, another thing you're exploring in your writing with regards to thinking about disability and you know, there's a parallel there with similarities in the sort of difficulty or slipperiness or, or sort of problems that arise when we try and settle on any one definition of disability instead of a kind of pluralized, more kind of complex, situated understanding of what disability might mean for different people in different places in different times. And I thought it was interesting how you, to a degree, sort of sidestep that question and, and instead kind of think about addiction and disability together and, and and I suppose use a kind of crip theory or sort of disability justice framework to think about addiction. Could you maybe explain a bit about what led you to think in those terms? It was very clear, rightly or wrongly, that there'd have to be an essay in the book or something in the book that 
raised the question, is addiction a disability? If I was going to write explicitly about addiction being a disability, just because that's clearly a very contested uh, point to make. On the one hand, I didn't necessarily want to, I suppose on, on the one hand, I, I, I do have, yeah, I, I, I didn't necessarily want to, I'm hesitant because I don't want to use the word panda because it's not so much that I think that people that balk at the idea of addiction being a disability are inherently bad or not thinking correctly. Um, I do, given the world that we live in, given the way that addiction is conceptualized, understand why that would be the case. I guess I didn't want to make an apology or it, it goes back to the general thing of I didn't want this to be a book that was like, please see my humanity. Um, and one of the ways that you might see my humanity is by seeing addiction as a disability instead of like a moral failing. Um, so I didn't necessarily want to apologize, but I, I did want to take seriously that question on the assumption that it's a question a lot of people would have. And in a sense, the essay kind of wrote itself. Um, I didn't necessarily know what conclusions I was going to come to when I started to write it. But the the first case study that I look at um, on sort of organizers uh, with chronic pain, organizing against like just the US medical system's terrible response to the opioid crisis and the like terrible consequences it had for people with CP. I'd seen that kind of messaging. I'd been seeing that kind of messaging for a few years and it had always made me uncomfortable. I didn't know why. And I'd never seen anything that um, explained why I felt uncomfortable. Now that there is a lot that's been written, um, maybe I wasn't looking hard enough, but it initially just began with me starting to write about what that discomfort was. And it's the same with the second, with the second case study, where when I was studying law at uni as an undergrad, I took a label or module. And this is where I first encountered um, the fact that addiction is explicitly denied the designation of disability under the Equality Act. And yeah, being an active addiction at that point, I did feel an immediate discomfort and didn't know why. So there was a convergence of knowing when I was writing this essay, knowing that I, I, I thought it had to be addressed. And then also wanting to actually take the time that I'd never taken before to sit through those uncomfortable feelings and think through them. And similarly, actually, a lot has also been written on uh, discrimination law and its relationship to addiction, because the UK isn't the only jurisdiction to take this approach. Um, I think I, I got a lot out of reading research papers from Australia in particular on this. So... Yeah, there wasn't necessarily like a certain methodology or a certain thinker that I had in mind when I started writing it. Um, these disparate things just kind of came together and I realized that they all made sense being put together into one essay. And I wanted to go back a little bit to your experience of recovery communities and this the sort of gap between your own sort of political consciousness and your own experiences and the way in which you experienced people in those communities. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that tension and, and I guess put another way, obviously part of what you're doing in your work is taking insights from um, various recovery communities and your experiences of recovery and addiction and um, applying them or kind of connecting them up with a sort of broader political consciousness but then obviously your experience of those groups there was certainly not like a one-for-one -one relationship and it was a bit more messy and it was a bit more complex and the relationships weren't necessarily always kind of people that you would necessarily see as 
comrades, if we want to use that word, but was certainly sharing in that knowledge production about that kind of experience. Yeah, I think I think there's two things that come to mind when you raise that. I think the first is, and I should write this down, otherwise I'll forget, slash I have already completely <laughs> forgotten. I'll just deal with the first point that I managed to write down before I forgot. Um, I think any any space that materially recognizes the humanity of some of the most abject members of society, I think was always going to do things that I found politically interesting, given that um, as a communist, so much of what I'm thinking against is all the dehumanizing logics that allow capital to flourish at, at other people's expenses, including addicts. So I think that that was, yeah, at, at the core of the sort of political potential that I could see in this community, maybe not right at the very beginning, um, but certainly the longer that I stayed within it. And then again, like humanity is what produces the flip side, you know, it, particularly because it's not a community that's interested in politics. Um, broadly speaking, and that actively, in fact, shies away from from discussing wider structures. People are coming into the space having, you know, internalized all the ideas about what power looks like, what justice looks like, and those inevitably get recreated in the community, even if it has um, managed to find radically different ways of of engaging with people. So I think about this. For example, um, so there's lots of different kinds of recovery meetings um, and there's a black women's meeting that I go to and there's so much liberatory potential there in the sense of having people that are um, oppressed across multiple axes, um, including addiction, who are thinking and doing against all the logics that just kind of tell us to die. But you're also getting people who have spent their whole lives being taught a very specific thing about what power looks like. Power looks like domination. It looks like exclusion. Um, they come into this space where, for the first time, they have the ability to to gain what they what to, to be to have power. Be it because there's so many vulnerable people in the space, um, you know. Be it because it's quite easy to accumulate power in the space when you have a lot of sober time, just people defer to you naturally. For whatever reason, you have people that maybe for the first time in their lives have a space where they can exercise power. And so they simply recreate um, what, 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 what's what been there before, what, what they've experienced outside of the community. And I, I don't think that that's exclusive to recovery communities. Um, I was talking about this with my spiritual director the other day and she said, it sounds like church, right? And so I think that that's that that's like part of a fundamental tension, right? Uh, it's it's a space that really that really really affirms the humanity of people whose humanity is completely denigrated in most other places, and so does radical things whether it wants to or not because of it. Um, but it is itself formed up of very human people, and so you get you get that tension. Mm. Could could you just say a little bit more about why people don't discuss, um, I guess, broader structures or, or maybe 
don't explicitly think in a the kind of politicized way that maybe we would both think about some things. Um, and part of the reason why I'm interested in this is because I feel like there's some really, I mean, I, I spoke to James Wilt on an episode a while ago, um, and he's written a sort of Marxist analysis of the alcohol industry. Yeah. And it's really fantastic. And I think it's a really productive way to think about yeah. certainly like my own relationship to alcohol and people around me and things like that. And um, in a way that's not, sort of moralizing in, in a really helpful way and yeah I mean I'd be inter- interested to hear why people don't necessarily tap into those ways of thinking in, in the communities you've been involved with. I think it has I think it always has everything to do with how one defines addiction in the first place um, and so yeah a point that I don't necessarily make so much in the book but I made elsewhere is that you know we're always making we're always defining disability for a specific purpose to a specific end. Um, it's really just a purely descriptive function. So within the context of my recovery community, we conceive of addiction in a number of ways, but one of the causes, internal causes, is an ability to accept life on life's terms, just like the desire to constantly make things work for ourselves, Um, which is part of the reasons why the community is a bit controversial and puts people off. It is in some ways, um, yeah, it's a very individualist, almost kind of pathologizing, saturated pathologizing model of addiction. And so it becomes actively important for us to not be concerned with trying to change anything outside of ourselves. We have to just learn how to accept things as they are. So that was one of the things that when I came into the community, I was immediately like, yuck. (laughs) As I say, I put that thought aside because I was like I see people getting well here I just want to get well um we'll deal with the rest later and so it's it's certainly my relationship to that community is very much I get well there and one of the things that I do with that wellness is try and participate in the work that lots of people are doing to to make life easier both for ourselves and for everybody else for people that define addiction differently um then there is a lot of like political uh, discussion. So for communities that see um, addiction as like a social problem as one caused by poverty or by alienation, then yeah, the conversations there are very political. And to go back to the addict collective, people who define an addict as somebody who experiences addict oppression, then that, you know, while conversations about um, the subjectivity of addicts is still really interesting it's really interesting to look at the interplay between our subjectivity and the political structures that we find ourselves in um obviously somebody who has that kind of definition of addiction is going to be primarily focused on politics so it just comes down to to definitions um and the definitions are always produced with or at least from what i've seen um the best intentions in mind people define addiction in order to try and treat it i'm curious as well as to what you think about the way in which people politicize those experiences. I mean, in your experience, the, the kind of people around you politicize their experience in one way or another. I mean, I, I feel like from what you're saying, the answer is no. And it's going to be like a huge diversity of how people make sense of their experiences. But I, I also get the sense that, you know, I, and correct me if I'm like totally wrong, but part of what I think is exciting about your work and maybe what you're arguing is that there is a kind of fertile ground for a kind of politicizing of the elements of these communities that are radical and do um, foster a kind of different 
relationality and a different way of thinking about sort of human relationships. What do you, what do you think the potential is in sort of politicizing communities like this? And, and, and what do you think is sort of to be done with the potentials that you describe in, that, are, that are present in many of these communities? I mean, is it a case of, I mean, how, how do you think that kind of gets folded into movements and sort of thinking about the desire we obviously both have for, in seeking out a different kind of relationality in, in the world? Well, I think there's two elements. The, the first is I think that for addicts ourselves, I think the value of politicizing our experiences is helping us get well and helping other people also get well. Um, because regardless of whatever model of addiction we have, the reality is that our political conditions affect everyone's addictions. So I think recognizing the political and, and and so I think focusing on politicizing actually our own recovery communities, our own addict knowledge practices, it feels like it could be an, an easier way of bringing people who might not be used to or want to think politically about addiction in. So it doesn't necessarily feel like here is a foreign political theory that we're just thrusting onto your life. Actually, we're already doing something quite radical. What could it mean to do to, to build on that? How could that help us treat ourselves and others? So one of you know the examples that I use is just the basic point that um, normative conceptions of how we should be using our time can prevent some people from being able to access recovery for various reasons. I was very lucky that I didn't have to work while I was recovering. It meant that I could focus on that. Um, if we take seriously the fact that barriers exist, like having to work when you should actually just be trying to get well, we can help ourselves get well, we can help others get well. More broadly, um, I do think that addict knowledge practices have a lot to offer leftist thinkers in general. I make the point that I like to wring the use out of everything, and that also means wringing the use out of everyone. Um the abolition of, of of capitalism, which the older I get, always feels silly to say, but like is the point, right? You know what I mean? It's it's going to require absolutely everything that we have, absolutely everything. Um, and we already have so much. And I'm just interested in looking to maybe where it's we're not thinking of looking simply because like capitalist hegemonic ideas have told us these aren't people that produce knowledge that is useful for anybody. Um, inevitably leftist thinkers are going to uh, internalize that. Inevitably addicts themselves are going to internalize that. So it's just making the point that not just addicts, but anybody right at the margin, like these people might be developing large practices that help free us all. So the example that I, the central example in the book is re-transformative justice, uh, because there's a big focus on making amends to people that we've harmed in active addiction, not, not from a place of like self-flagellation, but from a place of recognizing that the relationships that, recognizing that we are just always in relation, that like, at least from, from my perspective, I frequently believed and behaved and still do TBH as though I'm an island, right? As though what I do doesn't actually have an impact on the people around me. And I feel like, this recovery community, it part of its central focus is just saying that's a lie. Like we are always, always, always connected to each other. We matter to each other. And part of honoring that truth is 
seeking to make amends, even if the other person does not want to forgive you, even if you don't want this person in your life anymore for whatever reason. It's simply a way of just recognizing that we are connected to each other and that it's important, therefore, that we seek to we seek to bandage wounds, we seek to we seek we seek to fix what we've broken. And so the practical, there's lots of practical elements to that, because that's tricky business. Uh, and it just occurred to me that there's lots of practical potential things that could apply to any community that's interested in engaging in transformative justice. And they are just experiments. Maybe it works in the specific recovery community and it doesn't work elsewhere. But the point is to say, here is something that you might find useful. Do you want to try it? I think that's totally exciting as well. I mean, we don't have to get too into the granular detail of it, but could you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by the sort of specifics there? Because I, I think you're totally right. I think, you know, if we're trying to build a world without prisons, there's going to be a lot of experimentation. So best to ask the people that have been figuring it out all along. And um, I, I'd really like to hear more about maybe some of the ways in which transformative justice is is kind of practiced in, in recovery communities. I mean... I don't want people to think I'm saying that people in recovery are already living in a world without prisons because they're obviously not. That's not just to clarify. I get that. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the approach that I took was was quite fragmented, particularly because like the central fact, at least the way that I understand it, of transformative justice isn't actually necessarily about transforming individual people. It's about transforming the world um, first. Whereas I think the recovery, but what I find useful is that obviously in the process of, you know, building a world without the need for prisons, that that's going to involve personal transformation as well. And that, that's also not to say that people like engaged in transformative justice have not considered that they, they have. But I was interested in the specific ways that this recovery community does that. And what made it easier for me was things like working with somebody who... I already knew had been through a that like the same transformative justice project um, and somebody who I knew, you know, had caused harm and somebody who I knew was not causing the same harm anymore because shame is like a really big, tricky emotion to grapple with, particularly like at a collective level, like how do we have a collective approach to shame? I think those are things that helped firstly the the feeling of a, an absence of judgment from the person that was you know working with me um but also the hope that i got from being like yeah um if you were doing all of these things and you stopped maybe i can too that i just don't think i'd get in a situation where i i didn't necessarily have that knowledge about the the person who was or the people that were holding me accountable for something um, it's not always necessary, but it, it helped. What was the other thing? I, yeah, I, I think that and I, I write about how taking shame seriously is a way of holding fast to Bell Hook's promise that we can hold people accountable for harm while still recognizing their humanity and dignity. I think probably that's what is at the core. How do you how do you hold the the humanity and dignity of somebody who's called? called caused harm while also not prioritizing that above the harm that has been caused because you, you see in so many instances people being like oh you know this person who's caused serious harm is really remorseful and can't you see how much it's hurting them to have to like have these conversations and that somehow becomes more important than than remedying harm 
I think that this community really does take seriously the fact that no, you've you fucked up. Um, and the feelings that you have do not detract from that, no matter how how big they are. But those feelings still have to be taken seriously, not just because you're a human being, but also because it actually facilitates like facilitates the process of, of helping one become somebody who doesn't continue to to carry out that same harm in ways that obviously, you know, prisons or other sort of punitive measures don't always manage to do, slash rarely manage to do, if ever. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your sort of, I suppose, like religious and sort of spiritual commitments as well. I mean, you write a lot in the book about your faith, and I just wondered if you could maybe, for people that aren't familiar with the book or with your work, maybe just talk a little bit about how your faith kind of fits into what we're talking about here and I suppose how you sort of square it with your politics and because I think for some people that's maybe not something that they will be as familiar with I suppose. No and I I get that completely I actually when I started to write the book told myself I wouldn't write about religion the reason that the question came up in the first place is because um, my faith for various reasons does play into like what my recovery looks like but um, quite common for a lot of people right I mean that's yeah it is but yeah I was like I can't write a book that I'm hoping Marxists will read and then write about God obviously stupid or like or even like not going to work but then when I started to write it that was one of the first things that I ended up writing and I ended up writing a lot of it and it was at a point where the book deadline was looming so I just wasn't going to chuck it (laughs) But in terms of how I think it relates to my political commitments, I think, firstly, there's a, there's a sort of long history of, I guess I'll focus on Christians, although obviously this is true of a whole range of religions and, and, and faith traditions, that there is a long history of um, radical, even Marxist Christians. And part of the ways that I square the circle of being an African Christian specifically, which on the face of it, quite embarrassing actually um, when one thinks about it or at least just difficult is that I see Christianity as one of capitalism's contradictions in the sense that it was initially foisted upon us in order to subjugate us but it's just full of messages of liberation that black theologians you know from the states and from the African continent that liberation theologians from you know South America and Southeast Asia have used to you know not just produce anti-capitalist theory but to lead like anti-capitalist movements um engaging with christianity as a contradiction of capitalism is basically sort of at the core of how i how i practice it and even you know specifically being an anglican i really only started to feel comfortable with taking on that mantle specifically when i encountered people that wanted to abolish the church of england um because that's the only stance in relation to it that makes any sense to me um, and so people seeking to abolish the Church of England in order to get to what they feel church actually is um, and seeing that as a Christian and, in fact, specifically Anglican activity. So I, I guess increasingly the two things have become um, sort of inseparable, by, by which I mean my politics and my faith, um, simply because when I encounter my faith in the hands of radicals, it becomes a weapon and a useful one. But 
it, it, it is tricky. And uh, somebody, I think jokingly a friend mentioned that I was trying to evangelize with the book, which I'm really, really not, makes me uncomfortable. Um, if, if that's If that's sort of what people are taking away, even though I can't really control what people take away from it. Um, the reason that I have like the note on religion in the book, which I say in the book I initially wasn't going to include is precisely because I take seriously the violence of Christianity um, and the very many reasons why people would find it strange to find references to it in a book like this. Um, and again, I think about that in terms of sort of dialectics um, and through capitalist contradictions as well. Um, and so the purpose of the book isn't so much to isn't at all to like proselytize I, I guess it was just one it's it's central to the way that I think and it would have felt I think dishonest to exclude it but I, I do also think that it, it's worthwhile to show how the two things can interrelate for people that maybe personally have always wanted them to interrelate but haven't, necess haven't necessarily found ways to do that um, and also, as I say in the book, because the vast majority of the planet's working class and peasantry are in some ways religious and spiritual. So there was an extent to which, I don't know if it's obnoxious to say this, but there was, there was an extent to which it was trying to help get atheists, agnostics, or people who very much feel like Marxism and religion don't mix, used to seeing them mix, because the reality is that um, if we're going to be internationalist and if we're going to take Marxist thought seriously around the world, we're going to have to get used to seeing people merge the two things. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I related to that book, that, that part of the book probably through my parents' experiences. I mean, both of my parents were raised Catholic, Irish Catholic, and I suppose they've both to different degrees disavowed it, but both very political and a and are very aware of the way in which Catholicism has informed and sort of shaped their politics in a way that is, I suppose, sort of recreating certain kind of biblical structures or, or sort of or sort of Christian Catholic ways of thinking about the world in, I suppose, another guise or, or other language. Um, and yeah, I think you're really right. I mean, it didn't I didn't receive it as proselytizing. I, th I think it's a helpful uh, reminder, especially when, you know, the point you make about um, the kind of, to, to build the sort of mass movements we require, there's going to be a huge amount of pluralism in, in uh, people's kind of spiritual and political commitments. But um, one thing I thought was interesting, especially with thinking about shame is your thoughts about sin and, thinking maybe about those kind of recreations of um i suppose ways of thinking about human behavior or how we should make sense of sort of transformative justice where where you're thinking about sin fits in with all that and how it relates to the writing about shame and again i guess then naturally kind of redemption and 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 sort of how how you see those two ways of thinking about human transformation and i guess morality together where they fit together for you and maybe where they deviate and yeah i'll be honest my thoughts on sin are very underdeveloped but it does come up in the book in the sense of one thing that i didn't want 
I, I didn't want there to be a narrative throughout the book of, I, di I didn't want it to be like an addiction memoir, although not all addiction memoirs are like this, but like following a linear narrative of this was a bad time and now I'm in the good time and the bad time was only bad and nothing productive can be drawn from it. And the good time is only good and it's excellent. Um, I think you see that both in sort of secular and religious um, ideas about addiction and recovery. And I say explicitly in the book that one of the reasons why I struggle to talk about addiction with Christians is precisely because addiction is seen as a time of sin and then recovery is a time of redemption. And I try to problematize that by sort of saying that um, the actual, the experience of active addiction has redemptive um, possibilities because it was other people drawing from their own experiences of active addiction that helped me get sober. Uh, and, you know, more broadly within the book, there are knowledge practices from active addiction that we retool in recovery that help us to, to sort of, like, live happier lives. But yeah, sometimes when I think about the structure of the book, there's a slight sense of discomfort, because I think it does still do that. And the fact that there's the bits on religion, and then I think they're immediately followed by the bit on shame, and then that's immediately followed by the bit on... um like imagining a new world, which can be seen as a form of redemption. Um, I think I can concede for myself that it was impossible to fully remove myself from that narrative <laughs> and from that book. Um, I'm kind of talking around the question of what I think about sin. <laughs> That's okay. It's <laughs> obviously is a big question. <laughs> but all, all, uh, all I can say is that something that I think is really, that I believe really deeply um sort of both theologically and um politically is that i'm gonna say this and disagree with myself two weeks later but just I, I think something that i'm always grappling with is that being human is really hard um and being human is painful for ourselves and for other people but i guess precisely because of a christian theology in which god made god's self human have to see humanity as good and I'm loath to carve out certain parts of humanity as actually inherently sinful and not good this isn't to say that I I, I don't I don't think that, that sin exists or that everything that is done because it's uh, has come from a human instinct or everything done by humans has to be good in some way so maybe I should stop talking but the, 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 there's something there at the core of it of just like Humanity is good. And so there are ways that we can grapple. Yeah, there, there are ways that we can grapple with the things that are difficult, that are harmful, that are painful, that don't involve just trying to excise it and throw it away and call it inherently bad and sinful. Um, like I say, I think that shame is a useful and productive response to causing harm. I think it tells us something important. Um, I definitely think that um, Christian institutions and Christian people have weaponized shames in ways that are deeply harmful and not at all productive. And so, again, precisely because of that dialectic and because of, like, coming from this incarnational faith perspective, I think I have to take shame seriously because it's human. I think I have a responsibility to think through shame in ways that aren't dehumanizing precisely because Christians have so often made shame a means of dehumanizing others and a, a, a way that even we internally dehumanize ourselves. And I think that fits into the way that I think about sin, even if I haven't fully come to any conclusions about it, largely because I haven't read enough. 
so that I, I'm sure that like whenever I pick up I'll pick up a book at some point a few months from now and somebody will be saying exactly this and then I'll be like bish bash bosh that's what I think finished I don't know until I find another book but um seems more convincing well if anyone's listening that knows what book that is they, <laughs> they should email yeah <laughs> um just another thing on that as well. I mean, one thing I find interesting about, again, this is obviously not true for all, but many religious communities and also, I suppose, many recovery communities is that they're, they're hugely interwoven into people's everyday life mm-hmm. in a way that I think should be an aspiration for movements on the left. And I sometimes wonder if they're able to do that in a way and again, this might be something that people disagree with because they've got a certain kind of epistemic confidence. So they've got a kind of confidence in in the sort of truth claims that they make about the world that can be very helpful in making sense of the world. And I was wondering how that should be compared to um, the kind of abolitionist commitment to sort of letting go of certainty and how we might be able to think about those two things together. So you know, is it possible to sort of interweave ourselves into each other's sort of everyday lives in a certain way whilst whilst, whilst letting go of that certainty? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it is, but I'm just curious as to about how, how we should sort of think about those two things together. Absolutely. I think, um, I think you are right about the epistemic certainty um, in both communities and that helping a lot. <laughs> um, I, I, and I've often thought about the effects that it has on people's level of commitment to these communities and also their commitment to like living out the principles that they they learn about in these communities and in the wider world like my recovery community is technically quite like it's technically quite like anarchic in the sense that the hierarchies emerge naturally because again as i mentioned people bring in stuff from outside but genuinely in the way that it's organized it is flat Um, and that should produce chaos, but it's produced actually some of the most like intricate, um, and successful support systems that I've ever encountered. So the, the mental health hotline that I mentioned that I volunteer with, with the book is with my recovery community. Um, and it's just like this intricate system of the, the role that I play is just roughly once a month, um, get on the hotline, people call the the hotline for the service or whatever um and usually usually just want to talk about how they're feeling about their drinking feelings of discomfort around it but if they want help then like i get their details i pass them on to somebody somebody finds somebody in their postcode who can take them to a recovery meeting um and the whole thing operates like a well-oiled machine on the basis of just like pure volunteers um and in the absence of a hierarchy and you see that obviously in the left but yeah i i think i i often i've I've often wondered um about why in this specific community it works so well and i I think you're right that there is that epistemic certainty and with that epistemic certainty is also the the life or death element of things i certainly know that a lot of what gets me to do stuff within the community is a genuine belief that giving back is part of what keeps me sober and I want to stay sober because I don't think that I'll live if I don't. Um, which again, you also get on the, on, like with people organizing on the left, although maybe it's not quite or always as urgent or as sharp, depends on who you're talking to. 
And to a degree, to a lesser degree in my experience, and I think it's a good, to a significantly lesser degree is, is ideal, you get something similar in Christian like communities of both that epistemic certainty and the, the sense that we are dealing with, if not life and death, that matters that concern living and dying in quite serious ways. But to answer your question about that relationship between epistemic certainty and uncertainty, certainly within the recovery community, or at least for myself, I can say that the idea of uncertainty is, is baked into like our epistemology. It's we're precisely trying to learn how to live with uncertainty. We're developing principles and ways of living about which we are certain that then help us accept the fact that maybe that is the only thing that is certain. Um, and so I think that that's also what gives it, it its staying power, like a big part of its purpose is to, is to help us live with uncertainty. And I think that the, the Christianity that I'm drawn to does the same. Um, the rector at my church quotes somebody else. I, do, I, I don't know who she's quoting. Um, yeah, the, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. You can't have faith in something that you you know for a fact you, you exists or that you can touch or that you can empirically prove. Faith requires doubt, it requires uncertainty, otherwise it doesn't exist. And so, yeah, I think that both things deal with those contradictions quite well and quite convincingly, and it's, it's certainly part of a, a staying power. And again, bearing in mind that there are many, many, many Christian communities that have the opposite opinion to that. And they have their own staying power for their own reasons. Yeah, certainly. I think this, the final thing I'll ask you about is um, addiction. And actually, before I say this, I, I'm not sure how you feel about this question. And I wasn't sure as I was thinking about it, if if the language I came to was actually the right language. So, so bear with me. But I wanted to ask you about kind of addiction as a mode of consumption it's kind of being expanded um, in in our kind of, I guess, this sort of current phase of capitalism that's so interwoven with, I guess, kind of like communications media and sort of digital media. Um, it seems like we're engaging with more and more services and commodities that encourage, and this isn't what I'm sure about, an, a sort of addictive or, or compulsive attachment. And I was just kind of wondering about I suppose what you make of that, if you if you feel like that's kind of an accurate description of some of the things that are happening, and if so, how that adds to the role of addicts epistemologies in thinking about the way in which capitalism, I suppose, kind of directs our sort of flows of desire or, or, or sort of captures our desire in a certain way. I think as you were asking the question, I thought about the essay on loneliness um, a lot in the sense that I do think that, I, I think addictive is the right word, particularly when we go back to the fact that there, there is no one cause of addiction and therefore there can't really be any one definition of, of what counts as addictive uh, or, and compulsive also works as a word. Um, I think, I think, before I make the statement, I want to check if I actually think it's true. <laughs> I certainly think that compulsive tendencies must flourish wherever there's alienation, right? 
we're deprived of many of the things you, you know yeah whatever many of our desires are curtailed and we are instead presented with um different desires be they manufactured or just maybe very real desires but that are being sold back to us in very alienating ways i think it makes sense that people would 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 follow that natural instinct to to enact one's desires um in ways that can become compulsive um under under those sorts of conditions particularly where there's scarcity right you know it's not just that we're told to consume it's that our lives are stolen from us for most of the week and then we get if we're lucky two days a week to get those lives back i think i, I know that there's lots of people that have thought about this more more deeply and, and, and written about it more extensively, um, which is why I'm perhaps being vague. But I, I guess it, it makes me think about loneliness in particular as well, and, and the, the way that I think about loneliness as this passageway between um, finite relation, which I, I, I try to make very clear. When I describe relation as finite, I'm not necessarily saying it's like, bad or particularly because it, it's a passageway between finite relation and infinite relation and so there can potentially be an assumption that I'm saying that the infinite relation is like inherently good finite relation is inherently bad we always want to make that journey to infinite relation not really um uh, the finite relation allows us to to um you know the relationships that we have with other human beings with the world that are inherently bounded in some way, give us meaning um, in a different way that a relationship with the infinite, be that God, be that the communist horizon, if we want to think about it in like poetic terms, um, provides meaning and, and, and fulfillment in different ways, but they're both important, you need both. But um, I draw from this theologian, Marjorie Sachoki, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong, who talks about how loneliness is, in, in describing loneliness as this passageway, says that you know you you always have this infinite deeper relation this opportunity to relate to to god um but we tend not to notice it because finite relation is actually fine at meeting our needs like um but whenever finite relation our finite relationships for whatever reason are flattened um when when they're sort of deprived of meaning it becomes easier to discern this potential for a deeper relationship. And it's that that awareness of a potential for a deeper relationship that um that potentially can draw us to 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 God if we follow that feeling. And I talk about how for me the way that I think about what flattened that relation is um like the constant chase for oblivion, for more alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, flattened life enough that I could then feel that call. But I also write about how capital is a social relation that flattens all other finite relations. Um, when we get fed very specific desires, our lives become about chasing those narrow desires, that small list of desires, rather than the wider list of desires that we possibly have if we were living under a different political economy. And so I think that produces its own kind of kind of loneliness. Um, and so I think that obviously one consequence of feeling that loneliness can be going deeper to find God or to imagine a different world. But it can also just be, particularly if we've been promised that these desires will fulfill us, particularly if 
um, you know, some ad executive who's very familiar with that feeling of loneliness says you have that feeling of loneliness too, here's how you fix it. It can then produce a compulsive reaction to, to just seek more of those desires if they're supposed to be what's fixing us, if they're supposed to be what's fulfilling us. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Waythera for such a great conversation. Once again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please do consider signing up for a donation, sharing this episode, or giving the podcast five stars on Apple or Spotify. Long-time listeners will also have noticed a change in the sort of opening one-line description of the podcast. I made this change because I think it reflects a little bit more clearly what Red Medicine is doing and covering, um, and I think it is maybe a little bit tidier. So let me know you think. Let me know if you think it's better. Let me know if you hate it. I'd genuinely be curious as to what people think. With all that being said, thanks again and keep an eye out next week where I'll be talking to Orasami Burton about the Long Attica Revolt.